Sarah, our sponsor Vionic is back today with their Vionic Vitals collection. These shoes are the most essential styles for everyday wear to get us ready for spring, which will be here before we know it. We've already talked about my Uptown Loafers and Willa Slip On Flat and your Chardonnay Heeled Sandal, but this collection also includes the Walk 23 Classic Sneaker. That is that unapologetic dad sneaker style that's so popular right now. And I was just thinking having all four styles would basically be like having a spring capsule wardrobe for your feet. Oh my gosh, that is actually such a genius idea, Megan. I love where you're going with this. You know, high quality shoes are such a classy way to elevate your wardrobe. And the styles in the Vionic Vitals collection really can be worn in your everyday mom life, whether you're running errands or dressing up for an occasion. Yeah, and let's talk about the comfort factor, Sarah. Vionic actually got started by revolutionizing medical orthotics. Today, they continue to use that science to make cute and comfortable shoes that can keep up with our active lifestyles. Use code THEMOMHOUR15 at checkout for 15% off your entire order at vionicshoes.com when you log into your account. That's one-time use only. Vionic Shoes, wearable well-being for your feet. Hi, I'm Megan. And I'm Sarah. We're two moms with eight kids between us from preschool to teen. This is the show where we help you feel better about the mom you are and share our own parenting tips and personal stories. We're not experts. We're parents who've been there. We're not perfect. We're real. Welcome to the Mom Hour. Hey, everyone, and welcome to the Mom Hour. I'm Sarah Powers, and I am flying solo today without my co-host, Megan Francis, because today's episode is number 26 in our Voices interview series, and I'm going to be chatting with author Kate Rope in just a couple of minutes. I know you're going to love our conversation. The interview that you're about to hear is really, really important, you guys. We have an incredible stigma in our culture about maternal mental health and about what moms are expected to do on their own, especially in the postpartum period. This episode is not just about postpartum anxiety and depression, although we do get into some really surprising things about those issues, but it's really about how we got to this place where we expect new moms and seasoned moms to be superhuman solo stunt artists and what we can do about it. Before we get going, I just want to remind you that you can subscribe to our podcast wherever you're listening to it, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, you name it, and that we have more than 200 episodes in our archives on topics across the motherhood and parenting experience. So if this is your first time listening, first of all, I'm so glad you're here, and I hope you'll check back with us on a Tuesday for a regular episode where Megan and I chat about all things parenting and motherhood in our usual format. Okay, let me tell you about my guest today. Kate Rope is an award-winning freelance journalist whose work has appeared all over the place, including at the New York Times and Real Simple, CNN, and a whole bunch of other great places. Um, But the book we're talking about today is her new book called Strong as a Mother, How to Be Happy, Healthy, and Most Importantly, Sane from Pregnancy to Parenthood, The Only Guide to Taking Care of You. And that really is what it's about. It's, it's, there's so many books on pregnancy and new motherhood from the baby's perspective and how to care for your new baby. This is truly a guide for moms who want to take better care of their own mental, emotional, and physical health. Kate lives in Atlanta with her husband and two daughters, and in this interview, you're going to hear her story of her own struggles with postpartum anxiety, as well as some really fascinating stuff about how we got to this place where the expectations of new moms are so different from what they used to be, and what we can all do to build back in some empathy, compassion, and right-sized expectations into the motherhood experience. So let's get to my conversation with Kate. Megan, spring is one of our family's busiest seasons with tons of time on the go. There are so many places to be and details to remember. And the last thing I need is the constant irritation of uncomfortable shoes. 
So today we're talking about the Vionic Vitals collection from our longtime sponsor, Vionic Shoes. These are the best essential shoe styles for everyday wear this season. So Katie on our team is getting ready for warmer weather in Chicagoland with a pair of Vionic's Bella Toe Post sandals. These are Vionic's best-selling flip-flop style, and they have a cute little bow on them. They come in nine great colors, but Katie chose a versatile black patent leather. They're super supportive for her high instep, and they even come in wide sizes, which is a great option. Yeah, the styles in the Vionic Vitals collection are classics that don't really go out of fashion, and because they're such great quality, they're going to last as well, even with daily wear, which mine definitely get. And I love that Vionic offers a 30-day guarantee. Wear them, love them, or return them for a full refund within 30 days. But I have a feeling after those 30 days, our listeners will love their Vionic shoes so much, they'll be ready to order another pair. Use code THEMOMHOUR15 at checkout for 15% off your entire order at vionicshoes.com when you log into your account. That's a one-time use only. Vionic shoes, wearable well-being for your feet. We are welcoming back Olive and June as a sponsor. And Megan, I'm so excited about this partnership because with spring right around the corner, I love refreshing the little things in my life, including my manicure. I am the biggest fan of doing my nails at home instead of at a salon because it's convenient, so much cheaper at just $2 a mani, and the results can't be beat. It all begins with Olive and June. Yeah, Olive and June's mani system has everything you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. These are profesh tools designed just for DIY. A couple of the items included are their best-selling poppy, which makes it so easy to brush on a smooth coat, even with your non-dominant hand, which you do have to use about half the time, it turns out. (laughs) And their award-winning cuticle serum, which is so nourishing and a finishing touch I love. Well, I've been a big fan of their quick dry polish for a while now. It seriously dries in about a minute, making it perfect for busy moms. Visit oliveandjune.com slash themomhour for 20% off your first mani system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash T-H-E-M-O-M-H-O-U-R for 20% off your first mini system. Okay, I am here with Kate Rope. Hi, Kate. Welcome to the Mom Hour. Hi, thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited about this conversation. I know um, it's going to be an important one for our listeners and not only the women listening, but hopefully also their friends and new and expecting moms because this is such an important topic. So. I'm going to start with a quote that, I mean, I know we use the cliche jumped out at me, but really, really kind of jumped out at me when I was reading your book. And this is kind of midway through the book when you're talking about postpartum recovery and the support that we have or do not have at that time, which is so, um, it makes such a difference in kind of our experience of adding a baby to the family. So the quote is, having help and support is the way nature intended for us to make human beings. And then you say in the book, you say, I want you to read that sentence over and over again until it sinks in. So I'm going to read it one more time for our listeners. Having help and support is the way nature intended for us to make human beings. So I'd love to start with your research into this, into kind of what used to be the way in our culture and other cultures for women to be cared for in the postpartum period and how we got to now. I know that's like a really big, (laughs) really big place to start, but I think it's fascinating. Yeah. And can I even go back one step further to talk about how we evolved as as a species? Yep. So one of the best interviews I had for this book was with Sarah Hurdy, who's an anthropologist, and she studies hunter-gatherer societies and also some apes. Um, But the hunter-gatherer societies that would be closest to the 
the kinds we came from. Yep. Um, and what she found was that basically there is no way that one mom or even one parent pair can raise a human being because human beings need so many calories and they need so many calories around the ages of four to five in order for their brain to get as big as it needs to get, like in order for it to create podcasts that we can listen to, like all, <laughs> the thing, all the things that we do as humans require our big brain. The only way we get our big brain is with a lot of calories. And moms are typically on to the next kid in a hunter-gatherer society. By the time a kid is four or five and their brain is expanding in the ways that we need it to expand in order to be a big thinker, um, that mom is already breastfeeding another baby. So basically all the evolutionary, almost all the evolutionary biologists now agree that the way that happened was by having something called alloparents, which is other members of the tribe, non-kin or kin, but not direct, not a mom or a dad, mm-hmm. were involved with raising babies. So that is evolutionarily how we are supposed to mm-hmm. create our, you know, propagate mm-hmm. our species. So that's that's step one. Mm-hmm. Step two is that for a long time we recognized that, and even through the colonial period in America, um, and still this way in many countries overseas. There is this respect for the postpartum period and this understanding that women need to recover from childbirth. You know, wow, brain, you know, like, hello, uh, that they've just gone through a massive physical experience from which they need to recover. And so it used to be that the other women in the village in the colonial times would come in and basically the mom would lay in bed and feed the baby and um, everybody would do everything else for about a month. And it's that way in many countries around the world still. Um, Mm -hmm. We called it a lying in period. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was sort of childbirth was social back then. It was Mm -hmm. it was a community event. So Mm -hmm. people came and participated and were excited. And so therefore, accepting that help felt Mm -hmm. natural and normal. And and you would pay that back. You know, the next birth, when you were up on your feet again, you would then pay that back. Right. And so I think if we can kind of understand that that's where we come from and that's what it's supposed to look like, it can be much easier either asking for help or receiving help. Um, And just I think we're so as moms we're and women and people we're so reticent to ask for help, but people want to help. And there's no way we can do this alone. Do you I'm sure you did look into this and I'm sure it could take up an entire hour. But was there a point at which the paradigm shifted and this more, I'm sure it has to do with the kind of medicalization of birth and, but like, we're so far from that now, this, that social experience and that collective experience of birth and postpartum. Can you point to like a decade or a, an event or is it just kind of the way we went? Yeah. So, um, I read this great book called lying in a history of childbirth in America. And that's where most of what I'm talking about as far as, Um, these rituals in the U.S. comes from. But basically, at the point that we started uh, expanding westward and um, families started being pulled farther apart Mm -hmm. and at the point that um, that birth started to be more a medical experience and less a community experience Mm -hmm. with midwives, those were the two things that um, that led to childbirth becoming this individualized experience in a hospital and therefore new motherhood becoming this individualized experience. And it kind of fits with the sensibility that came with like going West and um, individualism. And And that's, I think one of the big problems with motherhood today is that um, 
we we have so much belief in the capability of the individual in our country, which is fantastic for many things, mm-hmm. but not good for motherhood no. because we place all these expectations on moms, but they aren't given support. Their families are far apart. There's no visiting nurse service. There's right. I mean, some states have that, but most don't. There's no subsidized childcare. And so you're on your own to do this thing that is laden with all these expectations. Right. And then when you fall short or feel like you're falling short, you see it as an, a personal, an individual yes. failure, because yes. that's how we're used to looking at things in the U.S. But well, really, it's a collective failure of the system to support moms adequately. Amen. And not only that, but when we talk about expectations, the fact that we have access to so much information now means that the expectations have actually gotten higher and more transparent because we know, you know, what babies need to thrive. And we have all of this data and this these best practices, but we have no more support, zero. So it's almost like exactly. the gap is so widened. So as the expectations yes. go up, the support goes down. Exactly. Yeah. And so yeah, and it widens. This is this is big. And it's it, this is not something you just sort of crawl back from with one research study or one book. But your book does such an important job, I think, of making the case for taking care of yourself from the very beginning through pregnancy and through motherhood. So we're going to get into all of that. But I do want to move on and talk about, uh, and I want to say your book is not exclusively about um, perinatal mood disorders or postpartum depression, anxiety, but that plays into a lot of your research. So I want to talk about some misconceptions specifically about postpartum depression. And you use the example in your book of like, everyone gets the trifold brochure from their OBGYN where there's like a sad lady on the front. Um, yeah. and, and we by have, herself, by the way, by like her, maybe she's holding a baby, but she looks, she's like well-dressed and by herself. Yeah. Like and her that hair's, never happens. Her hair's probably her hair's blow dried. Yeah. She's showered, you know, but she's really sad. She's super sad. It feels inappropriate to laugh about that. Um, I know, but, but it's okay. Cause if you don't laugh, you cry. That's true. So I want to kind of break that down a little bit because I think you do a really good job about hopefully I think we're moving past that as our only understanding of the um, various conditions and struggles that come up postpartum. But let's specifically break down that misconception of postpartum depression looking one specific way. Why is that limiting and what what really are the common perinatal mood disorders? Okay, so postpartum depression is definitely part of the picture. Um, But what experts now understand uh, is that there are a spectrum of disorders and symptoms, and they can happen in childbirth, I mean, excuse me, in pregnancy and after childbirth, and they can happen up to a year after childbirth. So we're basically looking at a two year period. Mm -hmm. And this is the time in a woman's life when she is most susceptible, most likely to develop a mood or anxiety disorder. Um, And they can be the, the symptoms, there is depression, there is sadness, but Often, what's more common is feelings of anxiety, maybe constant racing worries about the baby, um, maybe doing things to try to control those worries, like you're you're worried about um, the baby getting sick, so you're washing your hands excessively, and and that starts to get into a little obsessive compulsive disorder. Um, There's also panic disorder, which is panic attacks that are that are happening. you know, more than once. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then there's post-traumatic stress disorder, which is something that can develop either because of a traumatic childbirth experience, or if someone has a history of trauma, often pregnancy and childbirth and new motherhood can kind of kick it back up. So it's a range of symptoms that don't have to look like crying all right. day long, although it can, um, but it and can, you it even- can look 
Oh, sorry to interrupt. You even brought up rage and irritability, which I feel like is not one that you hear um, talked about. So that was interesting to me. Yeah. Rage is, and when you talk to women for whom that was a primary symptom, they all say, I had no idea. No one knew. They feel badly because they feel anger. And that Mm -hmm. anger could be directed at their baby. It's just, Mm -hmm. they're experiencing the symptom of a, of an anxiety disorder and that, or a mood disorder. And that's coming out in that way. Um, so yeah, constant irritability, rage, um, sleeplessness, you're, you, you're exhausted, but you still can't sleep or you wake up in the middle of the night and you can't get back to sleep. Um, that was a big one for me. I, I experienced postpartum anxiety twice, which well, was the beginning of, of thinking about writing this. Yes. Book. You're reading my mind or my little outline that I'm looking here. Cause I do want you to tell your story and now would be a great time for that. So just set us up with, with what it looked like for you and, and the, how that brought you to writing this book. Sure. So um, with my first daughter, um, I always wanted to be a mom. That was the only thing I knew for sure I wanted to be in life. Went into it just 100% full-hearted, excited. Had a medically difficult pregnancy with her um, where there was sort of a lot of testing going on and we weren't quite sure. It ended up I was fine, but I was having some weird symptoms, some, some inflammation around my heart, and they didn't know why. So there was a lot of um, testing, and then I eventually had to go on some medication. Um, and so there was concern about you know, watching the baby's growth to make sure that that the medication was okay. So it started in pregnancy where I just had some things that I started to worry about. And I actually sought out a therapist and met with her and she was really helpful. She, she was with me through half my pregnancy. And then after my daughter was born at first, um, everything seemed fine. Um, I was, you know, anxious. I was a new mom, but it's, it's really hard to tell in the beginning, you know, of course. And and in fact, and we can get into that, you know, it's normal for, for new parents to have thoughts about harm coming to their babies and worries. It's just a question of how much. So for me, and and how do they make you feel? And so for me, they started just consuming me where I was constantly worried that she was going to develop a health condition or that I had developed, um, an illness. And, um, it was a, you know, a track that replayed in my head again and again. Well, what if this, you know, and if any little thing happened, if she had a temperature, you know, well, is it going up? Is she getting a fever? Is her immune system not working? And I kind of just replayed um, a track of worries in my head and similarly about my health. And that went on and it went on for a while and I was in therapy and we knew I was having a hard time, but still, um, I didn't have a name for it. Um, and I, I still just sort of thought it was just me getting through. I didn't really, um, know how big it was. Um, but it, it, it got worse and worse. Sometimes I wasn't able to sleep. I'd wake up in the middle of the night. I couldn't get back to sleep. I would throw up before going to work just because my body was just sort of on edge Mm -hmm. so much. Um, and, and when I was, um, when my daughter was nine months old, my husband and I were on vacation, um, in Jamaica, he was writing a travel story and we were being put up in this really beautiful hotel. It was like probably the nicest hotel I'll ever stay in in my life. And (laughs) I think nothing but bad things about it because, um, my, uh, nine month old daughter fell off the bed. It was about three feet high. It was a concrete floor. And, um, we talked to the hotel doctor who said she was fine, but here are the symptoms to watch out for, for concussion. And that night I just lost it. I just couldn't control the fear in my head about what was going on with her, even though she, by all accounts was healthy. Right. Um, 
and so I was, I was sitting with my husband on outside her where she was sleeping in the little bungalow we were in. And I just started screaming, I want out, I want out, I want out. And he looked at me kind of scared. And I said, no, I don't want out of life. And I don't want out of our family, but I want out of my head. Like I can't yeah. be in my head anymore. And so many women I talked to who experienced um, some form of anxiety uh, during or after pregnancy relate. Like I've had women yeah. break down just when I tell them that part of the story because yeah. it immediately clicks with them that yeah. that's how they feel too. Um, and so at that point we went back to the U.S. and um, I, my therapist said, "Okay, I think it's time for you to see a reproductive psychiatrist, which is a psychiatrist who specializes in treating women for mood and anxiety disorders around reproductive issues." Um, and I went there and she said, yep, you have anxiety and I think this medication can help you. And I don't think you'll need to be on it forever, but I think it will really make a difference. And two weeks after I started taking it, it takes a few weeks to kick in. Um, for me, I took Zoloft, um, two weeks after I started taking it, I felt like a different person. I mean, it was night and day. Um, I was, I was rested for the first time wow. basically since I'd become a mom. Wow. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's a really, really important story to tell. Um, we, our listeners are, you know, they're moms of kids of all ages, but we do have a lot of new mom listeners. And I think it's really easy to see how you would be, you know, making your way through early motherhood and even in, you know, under the care of a therapist, kind of convincing yourself that this was either the way, just the, you know, the way that Kate experiences motherhood and that this is the way it is. And I think that is, getting to the point where you realize it doesn't have to be this way is probably the biggest breakthrough for a lot of women. So I appreciate yeah. you sharing and, that and, story. And many of the experts that I interviewed for my book said it's not uncommon for them to see women when their babies were six to nine months old. Um, and the women to say to them, well, actually, you know what, two weeks after she was born, I started feeling this. Mm -hmm. So, so it's not uncommon to feel those symptoms for a long time, mm -hmm. but not sort of realize the totality of them sure. or, you know, yeah. think like, I just need to get through this. And also yeah. you're not sleeping. I mean, right, you're exactly. not at your, at your critical thinking best yeah. for sure. Um, and that contributes. Absolutely. Um, um you, so okay. go ahead. I was gonna say that. So, so the reason this led me to the book is that basically, you know, I started being really open about it. I started writing articles about it. I worked at the Seleni Institute in Manhattan, which is a, a maternal reproductive mental health nonprofit. And so this started to become my world. And what I realized was that it's very hard for people to, like we started the conversation, it's hard to ask for help. It's even harder to ask for help if you're dealing with something related to mental health, because we have a lot of stigma about mm -hmm. that in our society. So what I decided to do was write a book about how about the incredible transition that motherhood is and that that comes with struggle, which is part of life, but we right. don't really talk about it in that way. Yep. And, and your struggle may be that you're not getting enough sleep. Your struggle may be that you're not making time for yourself or, um, you know, uh, you need friends. <laughs> yeah. You, your support or your struggle may be that you have a diagnosable mood disorder, which by the way, these happened to up to 20% and perhaps more of women in pregnancy or after childbirth. They're the most common complication of pregnancy and childbirth. So they're a medical condition, just like gestational diabetes, for yep. which we are all screened and treated. Yep. Um, and, and that 
if that's if that's the struggle you're facing, there's help for that too. So right. I wanted to write a book that was like, these are the range of experiences you can have. And here are ways to prepare for them. Here are yep. ways to do what you can to prevent them. And here's how to get help when you need it. Yep. Whatever your struggle looks like. No one's struggle is better than another. Right. It's just a question of getting the right help for whatever right. you're facing. And you say in the book how relatively treatable um, most of these mood disorders are in that, I mean, it takes a long time maybe to identify and to reach out for help, but in fact, most respond really, really well and pretty quickly to treatment and may not be something that you have to deal with for an extended period of time. So in a way that's really encouraging to know, right? Yes. Yeah. And, and it is, I mean, they're so treatable and, and so many of the experts I talked to said, I love my job because there are very few situations where something can sort of go, go you know, sideways so quickly, but then right. be righted so quickly. Right. And um, respond so predictably to treatment. Which yeah. Is, and yeah. for many women, this is a moment in time. Um, you know, for some, it's maybe not the first time. There are women who maybe had sort of what they would call subclinical symptoms before this, um, you know, maybe low grade anxiety. And then which I would, I would put myself in that category. Right. And then, and then having a baby and the hormonal, I definitely have a hormonal response, um, just kick, just kicks it up into high gear. Um, but for many women, it's, it's a moment in time it's properly treated and they go on to not need treatment. Right. Other women discover that maybe they have something that will require treatment, but there are good treatments. Right. Um, so it's, yeah, I mean, it's, and, and if you don't treat it, if you don't get help, then that's where you increase your risk for developing a chronic mood disorder right. or more difficult depression down the road. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I want to uh, circle back to something you mentioned that and I, that also stuck with me from the book. And that is, uh, I think the chapter in the book or the section is called Making Scary Thoughts Less Scary. Um, and you mentioned mm-hmm. it as as your experience of having kind of a track of fear-based thoughts that would kind of cycle in your mind. But um, talk about just how common it is to imagine something terrible happening to your baby. Because I think if if a first-time mom is having those thoughts, they, it's super, super unnerving uh, to, to realize that your brain is even capable of thinking about dropping your baby down the stairs or whatever it is. So maybe, maybe if you can just normalize that for us. Yeah, totally. So, so first of all, even before you have babies, these are thoughts you might have had, you know, you're standing on a subway platform and you wonder, what if I jump in front of that train? Or you're driving down the road and you think, what if I veered into the oncoming traffic? It's, it's our brain's way of kind of test, you know, protecting us and Mm -hmm. testing out scary theories. Um, And uh, there's the like number one expert on this is a guy named Jonathan Abramowitz at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And he he and I talked a lot and he said, you know, the things we tend to have these the the things that kick these thoughts up are things that are important to us. So Mm -hmm. it's like, hello, babies, you know, (laughs) and our job is to keep them alive. Um, and so immediately we are evolutionarily programmed to scan for threats. Yeah. And there aren't any saber tooth tigers around, right? So the threats are kind of more immediate and the threat can be yourself. You could worry that you're going to drop the baby. You could even have a thought like, what if I took that knife and stabbed my baby? Yeah. You could have that thought. And that's, that doesn't mean you're going to do that. Um, It's just, you see a knife, you're holding your baby, you recognize there could be potential danger there and your brain puts it together. Yep. Um, so, and he even, he even gave me the example of you could be changing your child's diaper and think, what if I molested my child? Um, because that's a huge fear as a parent. So it's like your brain is searching out the possible dangers Mm -hmm. and trying to sift through them and avoid them. 
So that's normal. 99% of parents, well, actually, I think the actual stat is 91%, but I think it's got to be almost like 99% of parents have those thoughts. That's, I mean, um, that's big. That's a big enough number that I want to just pause for a second. That That's so normal that more than 90% of parents have those thoughts. I think that's, I think there's so many listeners right now who really probably thought they were the only one. Yeah, no, mm-mm. totally normal. And if you start bringing it up around people, um, you'll start hearing about it, you know, like, do you ever think this weird thing? I have these weird thoughts, you know? Oh yeah, me too. You know? Um, so yes, it is totally normal to have those thoughts. Um, and then is there a point at which that can kind of be cross over into the type of anxiety that maybe needs some, um, some more attention? Yeah. So, um, what matters is not the thought. In evaluating whether or not you have an anxiety disorder, it doesn't matter what that thought is. The thought is not the key to it. The key to it is how do you respond to that thought? Okay. Um, Do you worry that you're a really bad person because you had that thought? Do you start to obsess that you might do something to your child because of these thoughts you're having? Um, Are they taking up so much of your brain space as they were for me that it makes it difficult to function in your life? Right. it's about sort of how you respond. Are you starting to do things to try and control the thought? Like, Mm -hmm. let's say your worry is, um, I'm worried I'm going to drop my baby down the stairs. So you start asking your partner or your mom or whoever's around to take your baby down the stairs because you're worried that you're going to drop the baby. So you're alter, you're altering your behavior to protect the baby. And then the problem with that is that the baby doesn't fall down the stairs and you begin to think, Oh, it's because I'm no longer carrying the baby. So it sort of like feeds itself. Um, so, um, and, and you're kind of constantly seeking information for me, it was going online and looking up symptoms yes. um, of yes. possible illnesses. You know, um, I've talked to a lot of moms for whom there's like a car seat thing that happens. They get in the car and they check and recheck that their baby is in the car seat or mm-hmm. that they're not in the driveway and they're about to run them over. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you start to alter your behavior, if yeah. it starts to change how you perceive yourself, yeah. um, if it starts to um, just make it difficult to function, then those are all signs that you're experiencing an anxiety disorder or potentially a little bit of obsessive compulsive disorder, which is very close to anxiety. They're very tied. Right. And there are really good treatments for both of those. Um, Cognitive behavioral therapy is very effective um, as is um, regular individual psychotherapy. And, um, and then there's medication. So for me, I did, and often a combination of those. So for me, I did therapy and medication and the medication calmed my brain down enough to be able to engage yeah. in therapy in a productive way right. because I was thinking more clearly and I could say, oh, that, okay, that, that is a really unlikely scenario right. that I'm playing out in my head. Or this general, um, another symptom that, that, that women can experience is just a real kind of constant sense of dread, of mm-hmm. doom, that something bad is on the horizon. I had that all the time. And I would begin to understand that that did not mean something bad was going to happen. That was just my brain having a feeling. Yes. Um, so yeah. Yeah, no, that, Um, I think that's really, that's really helpful. Both normalizing the fact that everybody has those scary thoughts, but then also kind of parsing down into, um, what to look for. Um, yeah, talking about all this. And there's one more thing that I want to bring up, which yeah. is that a lot of times people are scared to to share these kinds of thoughts because we hear really horrible stories now and again mm-hmm. about women who have harmed their babies or themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and those women are vilified. Mm-hmm. And in the media, they'll say she had postpartum depression. 
which is another reason a lot of people don't want to speak up if they feel like they're struggling. Mm -hmm. Um, It is extremely rare that a mom hurts her baby. Uh, If she does, then it's more than likely that what she's experiencing is something called postpartum psychosis, Mm -hmm. which is an extremely rare condition. Um, it's, it's a psychotic condition. So that means you actually break with reality. Mm -hmm. Um, and in that break with reality, you may believe that hurting your child or hurting yourself is the right thing to do. You may worry that you've sometimes moms who have postpartum psychosis worry that they've harmed their child irreparably. And the only thing they can do to make it right would be to kill their child. For instance, Mm -hmm. um, they're not in reality. They're Mm not, um, they're not, um, you know, they love their babies, but they're not in reality. Right. And, they, and, and it's they very, think, very different. And they think what they're, other. yes. Mm-hmm. And when they think what they're doing is the best thing for the baby. Mm-hmm. So the only other distinction I would make is that if someone feels that hurting their child makes sense to them or seems the right thing to do, or if someone is talking to a loved one who expresses that opinion, that's a sign of psychosis and that mm-hmm. needs immediate medical attention. You need to go to an ER. Okay. Um, but that happens to one in 1,000 women. Mm-hmm. who have babies. Right. For the rest of us, the majority of us are experiencing these thoughts as really disturbing to us. They they don't make sense. They make right. us worry about um, our right. behavior. And that is a sign that we are not at all a threat to our child. Right. But maybe we're experiencing an anxiety disorder and we could feel so much better with the right, right help. Right. Um, no, that's such that's such good clarification. So you helped me transition perfectly again, because I want we've, we've just mentioned the help that's available and the help that you got. But I think sometimes a big um, like stumbling block for a lot of women is they're already overwhelmed. They already maybe don't have enough childcare or support. So the thought of like making a therapist's appointment or squeezing in yet another doctor appointment or even picking up the phone can feel like almost kind of too much to deal with. I'd like to just break down we we like we use this phrase like getting help but what is getting what could getting help look like like talk me through a couple of scenarios what could be the first phone call would it be to your OBGYN would it be to like maybe take me through a couple of scenarios of what that help might look like really functionally sure so i would say if you have someone in your life a partner a friend a relative whom you trust and feel safe sharing things with and is someone who you feel like will help you, then then sometimes the first step could be just saying it out loud to someone yeah. you feel comfortable with just as, a, as an icebreaker. And, and you can ask them, like, I need your help because right. then they can be on your team and then yeah. they can make phone calls, you know? And so that doesn't take that. I mean, it takes a little bit of bravery, but other right. than that, it doesn't take a lot of time. Right. Um, if you don't have that person in your life, or if you just would rather just talk to an anonymous person who doesn't know you, which I totally get, then um, you could call the Postpartum Support International Warm Line. Okay. Um, it's postpartum.net. Okay, and we'll link to there, that in, find... our, in our show notes okay, as well. Great. Mm-hmm. So um, they they that's a warm line. So they'll get back to you within like 24 hours and they can connect you to a coordinator in your state um, who can help get you to a mental health professional. But more importantly, usually these coordinators are people who are either mental health professionals or have experienced the condition themselves. Mm-hmm. So just getting on the phone with that person, you can't underestimate how amazing it will feel if you yeah. are struggling to have somebody validate your struggle yeah. and say, I hear you and I know it can get better and we're going to do this together. Yeah. So um, those are those are two really great places to start. If you have a good relationship with your obstetrician or your primary care provider um, or your pediatrician, mm-hmm. um, absolutely, you can bring it up there. Um, 
But what I would emphasize, you know, I brought my condition up first to my uh, primary care doctor and he blew it off. Of course, I mentioned it at the last minute of the visit, right. which is which doctors often joke about is the time when patients like drop the bomb because they finally <laughs> get the nerve up. And he blew it off and he just said he thought it was because I was withdrawing from steroids from this heart inflammation that I had. And he said, call me back in a month if, if you're really not functioning. Well, in a month, I really wasn't functioning and mm -hmm. I wasn't going to call him back. Mm -hmm. So um, I would say if you go to a provider who uh, brushes it off, um, then go to another provider. Keep, yeah. keep talking until someone commits to helping you. Um, and Postpartum Support International can be that if, if your providers and your family and friends don't, um, don't do it. Right. And then once that kind of initial contact is made, is is regular kind of sit down in office therapy pretty common behavioral therapy or is medication often kind of the first thing? I realize that's one of those questions that I'm sure the answer is it depends. But just so that the women listening right now can kind of visualize what what is a typical treatment plan if if there is one? So, well, yeah, it totally depends. But um, it's, it's not a lot of it is about access and where you go. Um, okay. I do think a lot of times when you reach out to an obstetrician, um, they may just put you on, um, on a, on a medication right away. Um, and that can be beneficial, but, um, really having a support group or a therapy practice, um, other things involved, or even getting to a reproductive psychiatrist or someone who can be really um, specific about how they dose you. And yeah. if, you're, if you're breastfeeding, um, many of these medications are compatible with breastfeeding, but sometimes doctors don't know that, or you might feel very nervous about it, in which case talking to an expert who can say to you, okay, 0.01% of this medication gets into your breast milk and your baby's stomach acid breaks it down further. So we're good. You know, right. sometimes you right. need further totally, totally explanation so um not the, that's not always available but um but your obstetrician should be able to consult with someone mm -hmm. even if even if they're you know they should be able to give a call they, there are great resources that um i can give you to put with this mm -hmm. um podcast um that you can get an expert on the phone you can bring an app to your doctor's office and talk through um breastfeeding safety and medications mm -hmm. um so so it could be medication um Mental health is, we still don't have really good access to mental health care in our country. And right. a lot of times, even though now uh, it's required to be covered by insurance, that doesn't mean there are providers in network. That doesn't mean there are providers near you. Um, there is starting to be some movement toward telehealth. So where you could do mm -hmm. like a Skype or a phone yeah. session with a therapist. So that is growing in, you know, in popularity. Um, it might be an option if you're in a remote area where there isn't mental health support. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, the gold standard, I think most experts would say is, is therapy combined with medication. If you, if you're experiencing a certain level of symptoms right. for, for mild to moderate therapy on its own can be just fine. Mm -hmm. And and there are things you can do. There's, you know, lifestyle things you can do, like exercise yeah, just and, thinking and of exercise. sleep yeah. um, that can really make a difference. So it's a combination of things. Um, right. But and but and online support groups, you know, yeah. that I mean, honestly, in some places, peer support, there, there have been studies that have shown that peer support, just being able to talk to a mom on the phone who has some training and talking about these issues and has experience with them can reduce your symptoms yeah. and can. Re so um, you know, connecting with, yeah. yeah. And what I'm hearing almost is 
something is better than nothing in most cases. So yes. making m- making time for that first phone call or opening up, like you said, to a partner or a spouse or a trusted friend, you know, uh, if like someone like me likes to know what, how everything's going to play out, but just taking that first step is better than not. Right. You know and, I mean? and, and yeah, and it doesn't mean you're going to be on medication if that's a worry right. for you. You know, it doesn't it, it doesn't mean you're going to have to go to psychotherapy once a week and you think, oh, God, who has time for that? Right. It could, it, yeah. No, it I think could that's look helpful. like different things. Um, it's just important to just start talking about it and see what your options are. Yeah, I love that. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.edu podcast. Okay, I am back with Kate Rope, and we've spent a lot of time talking about specifically the postpartum moms, Um, but I want to expand this a little bit because a lot of our listeners have had their babies. Um, Some of us have had all our babies and are done-done, as I like to say. Um, I'm going to raise my hand on that one. Yep, done-done. Done-done. Done-done, double-done. And so (laughs) let's talk about how we can, I mean, we're all nodding and kind of relating to this postpartum picture that we've painted, but we don't have to go through it again. So how can we be allies and how can we sort of become that village for the other new moms in our lives? And just what what can moms do to support their pregnant and postpartum friends? Because I think we want to, but it can be hard to know how. Yeah. I mean, obviously, most of us know kind of the material things we can do that'll be helpful and and make a big difference, like showing up with food, um, offering to throw a load of laundry in, um, offering to hold the baby while uh, the mom takes a shower, goes for a walk, um, and and offering three times because she's going to say no first. Right. Um, and, you know, sometimes you have to just say, look, you have no idea how much better you're going to feel after a shower. Just give yeah. me the baby and go take that shower. Um, I think another thing is asking how they're doing and listening when they answer. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's uh, where I think we don't really, you know, we just, we ask, but we don't really, we're like, how are you doing? How's it going? Like, really, you're like, right. no, really, how's it going? Are you sleeping? How are the nights? You know, um, what's she like as a baby? Yeah. Uh, you know, just kind of getting to the nitty gritty so that you can start to hear if yeah. there's something that that mom really wants to get off her chest or share. Um, I always like to ask, how's your physical recovery going? Because I feel like nobody asks that. And I had three C-sections, so I had a different type of recovery. But, but you know, C-section recovery is its own thing. Yeah. So I, I always like to ask that because I feel like nobody does. And it's a right. huge, in the first couple of weeks, it's a huge piece of the puzzle. Yep. Yep. Um, and I think a way to ask about mental health if you're there early on is like, oh, are you having any baby blues? Um, you know, which we haven't talked about, but baby blues are 
are a, a, a typical hormonal response that most women yes. have in the first two weeks after childbirth, um, which can be uh, weeping. It can be really ha- it can be sort of just mood swings. You can yeah. happiness can be in there, but then you feel really sad. Um, and for most women, those will resolve around two weeks. And if if things start to linger past that, that's another sign that yeah, it could I've be had, something else. I've shared on this podcast before that I had pretty significant baby blues with my first, but the reason I knew it didn't linger into another postpartum mood disorder was when it lifted, it was like it was like I had taken medication. It was, <laughs> it was that like extreme. me on Zoloft. <laughs> It was like, and I think it came on a little more gradually, but when it left, it was like a cloud lifting. It was the strangest. And right around then I had started to read up on it a little bit. And it was more like three, three and a half weeks postpartum when it went away. Mm -hmm. But when when it went away, it was gone. Right. So, and I have shared, so our regular listeners have heard me talk about that before, but I'm glad you brought it up. So I think baby blues are a, a, a gateway into a conversation yeah. um, where, to, where you can sort of ask a socially acceptable question about mental health. I mean, mm-hmm. you can also just come right out and be like, are you struggling? How are you doing your mental health? You know, yeah. I mean, you know your relationship with that mom. But if it's if you don't have that kind of intimate relationship or you don't think that question's going to land well, then talking about the baby blues or right. or just like, God, man, I remember woo, I had the baby blues or, yeah. you know. Um, just, uh, little, giving them little entry points to share whatever that's going on with them and then listening when they do answer. Yeah, no, I love that. I, I always kind of feel like compelled to let new moms know that it is going to be hard. And I don't want to do that in like a doom and gloom kind of way, but I feel like at the end of pregnancy, most new brand new first time moms are pretty euphoric, like so excited, like the onesies are folded and like the nursery is ready there's a part of me that wants to be like, just so you know, it, it, some of it might suck <laughs> and that's okay. And I think with the- I feel like you could, that, that could be your book. Just yeah. so you know, some of it might suck yes. by Sarah Powers. Yes. Totally. Um, and I think with certain people, I have done that more as a, not to like bring you down, but more as like a permission for when this, when this does start to feel like not what you expected, just know that that's normal. I think that's that, how I've that, approached that it. That was the whole point of my book. Yeah. I mean, that was it. Just like yeah. we can we we can talk about hard things. Yeah. And yeah. we can talk about the joy. Sure. Yes. It's there, but let but more but let's, you know, let's talk about the hard things because everybody yep. else is talking about the joy. Yes, absolutely. Okay. So um a lot of our listeners are expecting baby number two. Um, and so let's talk about second time around. I mean, there's going to be a lot of things that are similar the second time around, except that we're more prepared. I was actually very concerned about the baby blues the second time around, but because I expected them and talked to my healthcare provider about them, I mean, they were like barely noticeable because I was kind of prepared. So Mm -hmm. what's, what do you, what do we know about second time adjustment? What's easier about it? And maybe what's harder about it? Because obviously yeah. you already have a child to take care of. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't speak necessarily from research, but from my own experience, mm-hmm. I think the baby the second time around, unless unless you know you're gifted with a with a difficult baby, um, but the baby the second time around is usually the easy part. Yes, and it's it's the balancing the whole life um, yeah. and the exhaustion that are the harder parts. Yeah, um, and you can't just you know I just kept thinking, oh my god this is so easy. This is so easy. Why did I think this was hard? <laughs> you know? Um, and my four-year-old was the difficult one, right. you know? Um, so I think that um, it's just balancing your life and, and your life doesn't slow down. It doesn't stop for right. your baby. Yes. Right. It just still, I can remember like, 
bringing my two day old, you know, to, to kindergarten pickup or something, you know, yeah. and, I, and people were like, Oh, are you bringing her out in the germs? And I'm like, what choice do I have? I have right. to pick up my daughter. Um, so I think that life just kind of keeps moving and then you're just expected to just like jump on a treadmill that's already running. Um, well, and you might also feel like you're even less justified asking for help because when we talked about all the reasons why we don't feel like we can ask for help the first time, but the second time there's this idea that we're supposed to have figured it all out already. <laughs> like it's right. not the first, yeah. it's not our first rodeo. So we don't need the meal train anymore. We don't need like our mom to move in for two weeks or whatever, but maybe we do, you know, and right, maybe that's right. worth reevaluating. I had a friend, I'm going to say her name because she'll be happy for me to say it. <laughs> Miriam. Miriam showed up on my doorstep the night we got home from the hospital with lentil soup, which by the way, is now my go-to meal for new moms. I used to do lasagna, uh-huh. but I re- no, you need fiber. You need things moving after I, that's a good either point. a C-section or a vaginal yeah. birth. Um, you don't need carbs. So she showed up with this delicious lentil soup, um, a bottle of wine and some good cheese and a baguette. And, um, and we sat down and had a candlelit dinner with my four-year-old and it felt so beautiful. And I was like, Oh, we're in a family. We're having a sit down dinner. I'm sure the first time around we were just eating takeout or some frozen something, but it felt like it immediately placed me in this new world of family, um, of four person family, which was that. Yeah. So really sweet. I've been replicating that. Thank you, Miriam, uh, with new, with moms, uh, you know, first or second time around. Um, but, but I think to your point and and with helping other moms, like not, they, they still need help. It it might look different. It might be getting the older child out of the house. Um, but you still need help and you should ask for it and they still need help and you should still offer it. Yep. Um, One of my go-tos, and I think I've said that on this show before, but is because everyone thinks about dinner and brings dinners and I don't, I'm not a great cook. So I don't even like to cook dinner for my own family that much. So <laughs> what I do is I do healthy snacks. So I will get like a huge Trader Joe's bag of healthy snacks for the adults in the family, but also siblings, because I feel like yes. you're so hungry. So everything from like almonds, granola bars, fresh fruit, bananas, like, you know, the, the kind of stuff you don't have to really know their preferences. You can just fill a bag with stuff. And especially when there's older siblings, I think that can be kind of a treat for the kid. And then the pantry stocked with healthy snacks. So that's another yes. go-to. And I, I mean, I, that works for everybody, but especially if there's other kids, if it's not a first-time mom, because um, kids need a lot of snacks, as we know. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And similarly, I did something um, with my, uh, when I had my second, I put together a little activity bag for my um, older child mm-hmm. to do when I was feeding. Um, yeah, for me, I was idea. breastfeeding, but formula feeding, breastfeeding, however you're feeding your child, it's a moment of intimacy with you and the baby. And that can be hard for the older one. And so yeah. I had, she had a bag of like really fun activities that she only was, was the feeding bag. She was only yep. allowed to bring it out then. And then it went away. And that was a godsend. It also kind of kept her off me. And if yep. you're breastfeeding or holding a baby close to yep. your body, it's like you're already claustrophobic and it kind of yep. kept her doing her own thing. Um, and the other thing I did was I bought a bunch of like cheap things from like the dime store presents so that yeah. if people showed up with presents for the baby. Um, a lot of the time they were sensitive and they brought something for my right. older child. But if they didn't, I immediately yeah. had something for her. Um, yeah. So, um, and then just uh, speaking of mental health, I was also very worried that I would have postpartum anxiety again. Um, so I put in place my emotional uh, first aid kit, which nice. I, I have a section in my book that recommends this for anyone giving birth. Not This is not necessarily about second time around. It's just that I knew to do it the second yes. time around, um, which is basically um, I had my psychiatrist and my therapist, you know, in my phone. Yep. Um, 
my suggestion for people who are not don't have a history of a mood disorder is uh, go on Postpartum Support International, um, look up the symptoms of perinatal mood and anxiety disorders, bookmark the helpline just so it's there and you've familiarized yourself yep. with it. Um, have have a friend or a relative do the same, your partner, whoever, um, so that they know what to be looking for. Mm-hmm. And then um, create a plan to get sleep right away, mm-hmm. to get um, three-hour chunks of sleep, which may mean switching off feeding duties with a partner or a relative or a friend who's helping out. Um, create a plan to get out of the house and move mm-hmm. your body as soon as your recovery allows, um, because exercise makes a huge difference in your neurotransmitters, which regulate your mood. Um, and then, um, and research moms groups and mm-hmm. um, parent groups that yep. you can reach out to online and, uh, you know, in person yep. so that you have those to go to. And then if you do have a history of a mood or anxiety disorder, like I did, then make sure that you've talked with your OB, your you know, your, whoever your therapist is about like, what's the plan if I start struggling after birth. And in the case of my second daughter, I did right away. The second she was out of my body, I knew something was off. And, um, and I was talking to people right away and I got help right away. And I, you know, I was back to normal within two months and as compared to a year. Right. So, um, I just think kind of like thinking these things through before birth, whether it's your first, your second, your third, um, makes them less scary afterward. It's like, yeah. I always tell people to go and do a little bit of, um, couples therapy before they get married because, <laughs> because then if they need it after yeah. marriage, it doesn't feel so scary. Cause yeah. it's like, Oh, we're in couples therapy. It's right. like, we've done this before. We know this is a tool. This isn't our toolkit. It's a tool. and exactly. And we're going to, we're going to reach for it. Yeah. So, um, demystifying those things ahead of time. I think that's, that's all so good. I'm thinking as you talk, I, I hope our listeners will take the time to share this episode with somebody who's maybe not discovered our podcast yet because they're not a mom yet or they're at the very beginning of this journey because think how I mean your book think this this conversation all of this um if we can reach moms before they have to struggle for nine months like you did I think that's just such a huge gift so yeah and and the and the bigger picture that we all need to take care of ourselves yeah and give ourselves a break and understand kind of the expectations we're operating under and let go of them a little bit and, yes. and really learn to care for yourself because that's the the third section of my book is, you know, could be for, you know, a 62 year old mom yes. whose, kid, whose kids are graduating college, you know, um, basically, it's just about how to let go of perfection, how to um, take real, figure out what real self care looks like, like not just like getting a mani pedi or going out yeah. for brunch, but like figuring out, you know, is it joining a choir? Is it um, playing an instrument? Is it you know, walking in nature, like figuring out what actually restores you and, yeah. and trying to make that a part of your regular life. Well, and that's, that's totally where I was going next, which is you, I think your kids and mine are kind of in the same age range. Mine are five, eight and 10. Yeah, um, I've got 10 and six. Okay. So now we're, you know, you and I have been moms for about the same amount of time. What is this self-care and mental health look like for you now? Um, and and what kinds of things can we do in these kind of middle years to make sure that we're proactively taking care of ourselves in the same way we're hoping that new moms will? Yeah. Um, so for me, I discovered, and it took until my oldest was eight, 
that everyday exercise is like as good as an antidepressant for me. I mean, the effect that it has on my mood. Um, so I exercise almost every day. I have found a, a fitness camp where I show up and they tell me what to do because I'm not the person who's going to get up and go run six miles by herself. Um, but I go to a fitness camp. There's a community there. They tell me what to do. I have friends there. It, it, it's social. It's mm -hmm. physical. Um, that's the main thing that I do. And that's one of the things I talk about in the book. It's like, now that I realize the power this has, I, I wish I had known it long ago, yeah. um, but it's okay. I know it now. Um, and, uh, and I think learning to give your children space, which is perfect for both of you, because like they need to be learning independence mm -hmm. and you need some time to yourself. And I, I, I think about the fact that I am modeling this behavior for my 10 year old. I'm saying to her, I am a person worthy of care. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I, I, I'm, I will, I'm always your mother, but I don't always have to parent you. I can, I can take a break from that and, and let somebody else be in charge or you can be in charge, yes. you know, in limited ways while I take care of myself. Um, and, and just writing this book has made me so much better about that yes. in moments, in moments where I might think, Oh, I shouldn't, you know, I should like, uh, I, sh I really shouldn't skip that, uh, you know, assembly, even though I've got this work deadline. Well, actually now it's okay. like, now I think to myself, you know what, my child lived through an assembly without me and learned yeah. to rely on her own resilience yeah. and maybe had an interaction with another mom yep. that from her community that was good for her. Yep. Um, so I think it's, it's realizing that some space is going to get created as yeah. your children grow and you can fill that space with self-care yeah um and it doesn't it doesn't have to feel scary it, yeah you know I mean I think it can feel scary oh my child's you know today was my fifth you know my my daughter had her fifth grade moving up ceremony today um she's going to middle school next year well that means she's going to walk to middle school and yes that's bittersweet but it also means my mornings are going to be even more available to right. you know to work to to do my exercise so um I think learning to take space for yourself and um, and take advantage of the space that is that's already there. Yeah, um, I love that advice so much. We talk a lot on this podcast about like looking for those opportunities sooner rather than later for filling that time intentionally, whatever that looks like, whether it's exercise or creativity or sleep or whatever. Because what it's so easy for all of a sudden. So my youngest is starting kindergarten in the fall. So for the first time, I have everybody on a full-time school schedule at the same school all day, five days. I'll tell anybody who will listen that this is coming Living up. Living the dream. I know, right? Um, but it's easy to get to that point and look up and be like, oh, like I, I am freed up, but now what do I do? And I think that's true whether you're working full-time or at home, but especially if you've been at home or on a flexible schedule. So I, I mean, I'm such a big fan of moms practicing early on filling those little pockets of time with things yeah. that, you know, restore and renew them. Yeah. And I think making them a regular practice, yes. I, you know, I feel like what, what's easy to do is to once a month be like, Oh my gosh, I haven't seen my girlfriends. Can I go out with my girlfriends? And you go out and you have a fun time and it's great. Um, and maybe you have like too many glasses of wine and the next night, the next morning you're kind of depleted. Um, instead of not that you shouldn't have those nights if you like them, but, uh, a regular weekly daily, depending mm -hmm. on how much time we're talking about practice that feels good to you. Yeah. Um, and, and, and making that like a, a non-negotiable, yep. figuring out where it fits in your um, schedule and making it a non-negotiable. Yep. yep. I agree. 
Um, well, we're just going to wrap up by talking a little more specifically about the book. So, of course, I mentioned it at the top of the show, but the book is Strong as a Mother, How to Stay Healthy, Happy, and Most Importantly, Sane from Pregnancy to Parenthood. Um, so one thing I love about the book is it really is a mix of your personal stories, which you've told you know here in this conversation, and then some great research and expert interviews, and also some tips from real moms, um, in particular moms who have gone through various struggles. Um, so I'm curious what the process was like as a writer putting all this together. And did anything kind of surprise you as you synthesized? Because those are pretty three different things. It's your experience, it's other mom's experience, and then it's the research. Um, and it comes together really beautifully in the book. But I'm curious how that was for you. Um, I think I was surprised by the honesty of the moms, mm-hmm. um, which was uh, and detail, which was such a blessing because I wanted to have, um, I don't like books that you read where you kind of get stuck in someone's story for four pages. And if that story doesn't ring true to you, you feel a little lost in Mm -hmm. that, you know? Um, but I did want real experiences. So I chose to just put quotes at the end of every section from Mm -hmm. moms who have been through the, whatever the particular, you know, the sex chapter, the co-parenting chapter, whatever they were. And, um, and so I put out these surveys and they were anonymous. You could share your name if you wanted and just asked questions about, you know, did you have sex in pregnancy? What was that like? Did you have sex in the first year after childbirth? Did you feel touched out? Um, did you have a, a perinatal mood or anxiety disorder? What was that like? How did you, did you have issues with setting boundaries with in-laws? And I mean, the moms are hilarious and mm-hmm. honest and they just show the range of experiences mm-hmm. that is motherhood, which mm-hmm. I love because I, I, you know, there is no one way to do this, but constantly we're bombarded with the message that there is. And right. so if we're not doing it that way, we feel like, Oh, we're not, you know, living up to something, but it's just, I was just really, I I'm like humbled and grateful for how open these mm-hmm. women were with me and how honest and detailed they were and mm-hmm. just sharing their experience. And it just made me think like if we all got together in some awesomely, administered Facebook group. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't think there's anything we couldn't do or support ourselves through. Yeah, that's really, really cool. Um, Well, I loved getting a chance to read the book. I hope our listeners will go pick up a copy and more importantly, maybe gift a copy to a pregnant mom. I think that would be amazing. Um, Kate, everything we talked about today, I know you mentioned postpartum.net. Was that correct? Yes, that's and then of course, support international. Okay. And of course, a link to the book and to your website. So our listeners know all of that will be at themomhour.com. Um, this was episode 26 in our Voices interview series. So for listeners, that's where you go to find these links. It's themomhour.com. And just look for this interview with Kate Rope. Kate, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. Hey everyone, Sarah here. Megan and I would absolutely love it if you hit pause right now, right where you're listening, and left the Mom Hour a rating and review. If our show has helped you feel a little more confident as a mom or a little less alone, that's one of the absolute biggest ways you can thank us. And it really takes about 30 seconds. If you're listening in Apple Podcasts, just navigate to the Mom Hour's show listing. So not the episode you're listening to right now, but the kind of landing area for our show as a whole. And then scroll down to leave a rating or review. Thank you so much. Sarah, I have been having just the best time making my new podcast, The Tease Made. I launched back in November, and so far I've covered topics like staying warm on cold winter walks, nurturing creativity, how to be a great host, and even Nordic secrets to loving winter. 
Well, you know, I am fan number one of the teas made. It's got such a cozy vibe and it seems like you've really hit your stride in covering topics like wellness, self-care, comforting rituals and routines and home and family life. Just look for the teas made with Megan Francis wherever you get your podcasts or head to theteasmade.com to find all the episodes.